Okay, so we are on John chapter 8 and 9, and Jesus said, the second I am, and the first one was I am the bread, and now he's saying I am the light of the world. And remember, this is in response to God saying to Moses, I am that I am. Jesus has come to finish the sentence that God started in the Old Testament. And John, the, God, the apostle, is, going, is so good to write all these things down. Even after most of the disciples have passed and most of the, the New Testament books have already been written, he is faithful because he wants everyone to know about the Jesus that he loves more than life. So um, Chuck Swintall talks about the Gospel of John, and he says it's an invitation to believe in the Son of God and to become his disciples. That's what really believing is, is when we believe we become his disciples, to deepen our understanding of his identity and mission, to grow in maturity, and to join him in tending the sheep. And if you know anything about John, it starts with him calling the disciples in chapter 1, and it ends with him talking, having a little chit-chat with Peter at the end, saying, Peter, tend my sheep. So it, it really is about us moving along in our faith so we can be re reproducing, which is the mission, which is the mission that he died for. Um, so I love this. I love the quote because it shows the whole scope of the gospel. Um, last week we discussed the first I am, in a time of spiritual starvation, Christ declared he is the bread of life. After feeding the 5,000, Christ tries to launch the multitude from their preoccupation with the physical to the spiritual. And they are going kicking and screaming just like us, by the way. Hopefully this week the Lord has given you opportunity and maybe even have felt the Spirit's conviction, I know I have, in areas of where I'm preoccupied with the physical, and I need to move up to the spiritual. Um, the two points of application of last week's lesson was that Christ is all that you need, and as bread is to sustain life, Christ is all that we need. Christ is all that we need. I'm talking about him and his person. I'm not talking about the church. I'm not even talking about the Bible. I'm talking about Jesus Christ is all you need. So that's the first thing. That's the first point. The second point is that for bread to be life-giving, one must eat it. It needs to be appropriated. So then the, the thought goes, um, then the thought is that how do I do that? And so hopefully this week, it's interesting because, you know, we talked about ways people did that, you know. And I really have enjoyed that. And so please feel free to share. Because I can, I, I was thinking of you. And when I laid in the morning, I said, okay, this could be, this could be my, a spiritual time. Who knew? <laughs> because it is for Chris. And, you know, that, let's be more like that. You know, sharing, this is, our real, this is the real deal stuff, you know. So anyway, um, so no matter where we are in our walk, we can always take more of him in. Um, he wants us to be close. We're going to learn about that today because he's going to be the light and he's going to tell us to follow. And we're going to see how close is that. So um, the way he was last week towards spiritual repletion to filling us up spiritually, he's going to be this week when he says, I am the light towards direction. And let me just say, we as women in America today it's very easy for us to be misdirected. 
And there's a lot of confusion about telling us who we should be and what we should be and all of that. Jesus is going to tell us that he's the light and we need to follow him and he's going to give us the direction of our life. Um, but uh, anyway, so I'm excited about that. He says in 8.12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Okay, so let's, John, remember we talked about how in the prologue he starts all these lots of ideas that he's going to flesh out or grow to fruition in his, in his um, gospel. He mentioned light the first thing in the prologue. And um, so this is what he's doing. He's, he actually said it, talked about it again in chapter 3, and now he's going to talk a lot about it in 8 and 9. Um, but I want to just go back and read you the, pro, the prologue, part of the prologue in the message, because I want you to set you up for what he's going to tell us and what he's going to build on. So this is the message, John 1, 1 through 13. The word was first... The Word was present to God, and God was present to the Word. The Word was God in readiness for God from day one. Everything was created through Him. Nothing, not one thing, came into being without Him. What came into existence was life, and that life was light to live by. The light life blazed out of the darkness. The darkness could not put it out. There was once a man, his name was John, sent by God to point the way to the life light. He came to show everyone where to look and who to believe in. John himself was not the light. He was there to show the way to the light. The light life was the real thing. Every person entering life he brings into light. He was in the world and the world was there through him. Yet the world didn't even notice. He came to his own people and they didn't want him. But... I love my favorite but but whoever did want him whoever believed he was who he claimed and would do what he said he made them to be their true selves their child of God selves I just love that because I this is a relationship that he's talking about and he at the end of this relationship with him if we follow him and we're close to him we're going to wind up being our true selves. I love that because that's the self I was created to be before Adam sinned. And my true self and your true selves are different because God loves diversity. I mean, just look how many flowers and fish in where there are. So, but our true selves are ourselves that eventually we'll have in glory. It's about identity. And if you did my Ephesians study with me, we learned that it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. That's Ephesians 1.11 in the message. It's in Christ. Everything is in Christ. So let's go to the background. We left last week. Jesus had observed his third Passover. Thank goodness for John. Otherwise, we would have never known that Jesus was on the earth and had ministry for three years <laughs> because he's the only one that recorded all the Passovers. <laughs> so this is his third Passover, which is in the spring. And it's the only one that he didn't travel to Jerusalem. He continued his ministry around Galilee until autumn, and it was time to go to the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of the Tabernacles was a really cool thing. He went secretly, it says in uh, chapter 7, verse 10. Um, but it's a celebration of God's leading the children of Israel through the wilderness. So all the Jews, now I would want to be in on this, all the Jews would make booths, out of palm 
And I can't even imagine what Jerusalem looked like at this time because they had a truckload of people coming in. And they would make booths and they would live in them for seven days as they as they observed this. It was a fun festivity. I mean, it was a beautiful time. And it says the evening of the first day, there was a ceremony called the illumination of the temple. And in the center of the court of women, there was four huge candelabra. And after dark... They were lit, and it, it was said that there, there was such, they were so big and so bright that every courtyard was lit up in Jerusalem with their brilliance. And then all night long, Barclay says, the greatest and the wisest and the holiest men of Israel danced before the, law, the Lord and sang praise, psalms of praise and joy. And this illumination was representative of the pillar of fire, okay? So this, so this is the background to where we're going. God, Jesus gave several discourses in the temple, uh, including at the very end of chapter 7 when he said, and I've told you this before, when he said, I am, you know, come to me and I'll give you the water of the living water. Because basically Jesus at this point was, this was one of his last ditch efforts to get anybody in Jerusalem because he was going to be going back to Galilee again. Okay. So he said, I am the light of the world. Um, then he says in 812, well, then we have the little story of the adulterous woman, the woman caught in adultery. And then he says, right after that, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, right after that, if you read the chapter, you notice that the Pharisees don't even comment about any of this, his, his, what he said. They're all talking about his inability to validate this claim, okay? So it's, it's kind of like Martin Luther King's up there preaching his little heart out saying, I have a dream, and somebody's like, do you know his socks don't match? You know, like this is what's happening, you know? Like nobody's paying attention to what Jesus is saying, and what he's saying is, so important. Um, thankfully, John was there, so he remembered. So anyway, um, the, uh, the, far, the Pharisees keep arguing and arguing. And then, the, as the Pharisees tend to do, after they argue a while, then they go to name-calling. And you'll see this happen again in chapter 9. And at the end, in chapter 8, the last verse, if you're there, you should open your Bibles and look there. This is where Jesus puts an end to their arguing. And he says to them in 8, 58 and 59, And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Let me just say, he just made the strongest claim to the, his own deity that he's ever made or will ever make. Because I am that I am was the sacred name that God gave Moses in the burning bush. And when he said before Abraham was, I am, he said, and they all knew it. Because this is what they did. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Okay, so now we're going to start today's lesson. So let me quote Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, Jesus was often reviled, but never ruffled. One of the things worthy of being notice, of noticing in our Lord's character is his wonderful quiet of, quietness of spirit. Especially his marvelous calmness in the presence of those who misjudged, insulted, and slandered him. Let me just tell you, Jesus really, really didn't worry about this. He was all about this. Um, and they're all, and we'll see in this chapter, they're going to get all, they're going to get all angry again. And he is, and he's just trying to calmly 
make a very important point. So it, so we end chapter 9, we find the miracle and the discourse. Oh, so as we enter chapter 9, we find the miracle and the discourse that goes back to support his statement that he said in 8.12. So in essence, Jesus is going to do a physical miracle to show a spiritual truth that he just said in 8.12 and he's going to repeat in chapter 9. So let's, as everyone there, turn your Bibles to John 9, and I'm going to read 1 through 12. So as he passed by, Jesus, Jesus passing by, this is right after they tried to kill him, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to them, said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as, a, as with the beggar saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. And others say, No, it just looks like him. And he kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Salome and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Um, the beggar now becomes the perfect metaphor for physical blindness and spiritual blindness. Okay, so you're going to see the beggar being healed physically. And then you're going to see him being illumined as far as who Jesus is. And you're going to see the Pharisees who are not supposed to be blind become even more and more and more obtuse as this as we go down um so it's a perfect method to illustrate the plight of those living in the darkness of sin you and me we were born of a human father we we're born spiritually blind and this is how we've been since adam so let's go back and look at it verse one first of all jesus they're looking at this as an object lesson, as a little theological nut to crack. And Jesus is looking at the guy. You know, can we be more like Jesus and look at the people? Um, so anyway, he says, uh, there was two current schools of thought about sin. Now, this is kind of funny because they all had written, had written, had wrote, had read Job. <laughs> and we know the story of Job because Job's friends kept saying, confess, confess, we know you did something wrong. Because it was such a common thought that if that any kind of physical abnormality or any kind of physical uh, disease was a result of sin. Like everyone thought that. Even though, jo case in point, Job proved, no, that wasn't me. And Job had to pray for his little friends. Um, <clears throat> but there were the two current schools of thought about this person that was born blind was that either he sinned in the womb or his parents must have sinned. So, so yeah, I'm like, boy, that's tough. <laughs> so, you know, the Exodus 20 verse 5 says, I'm a jealous God punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. So most of them really thought it was the, the parents' fault, okay? 
So Rabbi Ami says, there is no death without sin and there is no suffering without iniquity. So again, this is what they really, this was the, this is the truth that they believe. Um, the fact that he was born blind was significant because up in this time, there's no biblical record from Genesis all the way up to John. No priest, no prophet, no apostle has ever given sight to a person that was born blind. So this is a big deal. So Jesus answered and said, it is not the man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So in verse 3, Jesus responds to the question with a non-answer. <laughs> it says neither. It's neither. He wants his disciples to, again, to start thinking out of the box. And, um, and he wants us to think out of the box too. They were concerned with this theological problem where Christ is concerned with a man and his, the fact that he's blind. Uh, Spurgeon says, It is ours not to speculate, but to perform acts of mercy and love according to the tenor of this gospel. Let us then be less inquisitive and more practical, less for cracking doctrinal nuts, and more for bringing forth the bread of life to the starving multitudes. Amen? So, verse 4 he tells him why. This work must be done while it's day. Jesus knows he only has six months left. This is right now. We are in the fall. He is going to be crucified in the spring at Passover. So he knows he only has six more months. And he said, while I'm here, I am the light of the world. So um, he wants his personal mission to be completed. Remember he said before that that was the, the, his food was to do the work and to finish the work that his father gave him. So he goes, uh, so verses 5 through 7, As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, and he made mud with saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to them, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is sent. So he went, he washed, and he came back seeing. So let me just say that, Spitting and spittle at this point was known to be recuperative. So it, it was a thing back in that day. Like spit thought, they thought spit would cure things. So I'm just saying this is not unusual for him to do this. <laughs> However, of course we know that Jesus could have just healed the blind man without doing all this. But Jesus was making a point, And we know that point because it's going to tell us in about two minutes, it's going to say, and it was the Sabbath. <laughs> and Jesus went out of his way not to break any of the 613 Old Testament rules, but he would go out of his way to break all the, the Talmudic rules, the rules the, that the rabbis had made in the intertestinal period. And they had taken the 613 and made thousands and thousands of rules about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. It was a thing. And so one of the things that they, the common uh, pharisaical interpretation was that you can't need because that's working. So when he made mud, ladies, he needed. Okay? So, and of course, he did it on the Sabbath. And you are not supposed to heal on the Sabbath either. So, anyway, so on this occasion, um, okay, so he, again, <laughs> broke a few of their rules um he sends him to the pool of salome <coughs> let me tell you the pool of salome is a pretty interesting thing basically hezekiah back in the old testament was afraid that they would that jerusalem would be sieged 
So, and they didn't have water. So he, they actually dug a tunnel that they just unearthed not that long ago. And you can actually, when you go to Jerusalem, you can go walk through this tunnel. But it was a, it was a tunnel that let the water, the, the river, come in to Jerusalem. And, uh, and, it was, and that's why it's called sent, because the water was sent. And not to say anything about John and his writing and on many levels, but Jesus also was the sent one. The sent, he was sent. Mm-hmm. 25 times he was sent in the gospel. So I'm just saying. There's doo-doo-doo-doo. He's out there. <laughs> so he went and he washed and he came back seeing. So let me just say that the, this beggar, who is one of my heroes, I'm not kidding you, him and the Samaritan woman, they were the lowest of the low in their society. But let me tell you, they were the coolest people ever. <laughs> anyway, so this, uh, this beggar comes back. It took faith because he Jesus didn't even promise anything to him. He said, go do this, and he just did it. Um, so since healing the blind eyes was the work of the God, uh, of the Lord, it shows that Jesus was God. Um, Psalm 146, 8 says, the Lord's open, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Also, it was a, known to be a, a, te, a, a prophecy for the Messiah. It, in Isaiah 35, 5, it says, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and that will be the work of the Messiah. So, like I said, Jesus is checking all these boxes that they are completely unaware of. Because he's not checking the boxes that they want him to check. Um, so verses 11, uh, 8 through 11. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It's he. And the others said, No, it just looks like him. And he kept saying, I'm the guy. I am he. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he said, A man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Salome and wash and I went, I washed, and I received my sight. Now, first of all, this is an older beggar. He's not like a young spring chicken because we know he's, he's reached majority because his parents are very quick to say, it's, this is not my problem. So he's an old, he has been blind. He's been probably at the same spot by the temple for years. So he's well known and everyone knows who he is. And so he's a familiar sight and everyone knows that. So, um, so he, and all, all he knew is that a man named Jesus did this. He didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know much of anything. Um, but he just said, uh, to go wash and he washed. So he had faith, uh, John nine thirteen through 23. So again, there's this big neighborhood brouhaha. Is this the guys? And he, he's standing there saying, hello guys. It's me. It's me. Trust me. And they're like, oh, no, we have to go to the authorities. Okay, we must get we must get the Pharisees involved. So they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been born blind. I'm in uh, 13 through 23. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how it was that he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes. I washed and I see. Now this guy's getting a little tired of saying the exact same thing over and over and over. So he's about to get a little snarky, which is really kind of amusing. Um, So some of the Pharisees say, this man, this Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Now, again, as they are getting more and more, 
as their vision is getting cloudier and cloudier to where they are going to be blind at the end, his vision is opening spiritually. Jesus starts out as a man, and then he says, he's got to be a prophet. He's got to be a prophet. Uh, so, and we'll get to where we finally go, where he says he's God. So the Jews, I'm finishing, did not believe that he had been born blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he sees now, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He can speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Now, I'm just saying... We think of these little Jewish people, these Pharisees, and I want you to know they're the worst type of bully that you've ever seen. They were supposed to be the guardians of truth. And here this comes up and they have nothing and all what they re- resort to is bullying. They, they, if you don't agree with what I say, regardless of the truth, I'm going to th- excommunicate you. And let me tell you, excommunication to Jews in their community was a huge deal. Because it was, the community was everything. So when they put them out of the temple, they couldn't make a living because who was going to buy their stuff? They were like anathema. So it's like they had the scarlet A, okay? So they couldn't do anything. So that's why these parents were like, now, the blind beggar, he had had just about enough of this. (laughs) So he kind of figured out that he was just going to go down. So he was going to go down in a blaze of glory. So um, let me just say there was a division among them Instead of uniting everyone, Jesus often divided men. They were divided between those who accepted him and trusted him and those who did not. In choosing, they took two, one of two sides regarding Jesus. Jesus was either a sinner and should be rejected because he healed on the Sabbath. Or, here's another thought, our understanding and application of the Sabbath law could be wrong. Oh, no. (laughs) That would be silly. (laughs) While there was far more evidence for the second proposition than the first, yet it seems far more of them adopted the second uh, position. And they did this in spite of the evidence, not because of it. so funny what a slippery slope the whole thing is. I mean, now they're beginning to say... Well, I don't think he was ever blind from birth. Yeah. I mean, the guy's been there. <laughs> it's just funny. And let me just say that one of these commentators made a really good cause about how this beggar represented the truth and how he refused to be intimidated by the truth. And he was, what a good witness he was. Um, and how he didn't succumb to the peer pressure of that they were. Because they weren't even making sense at the end. And, and so he could have just said, well, whatever. But he's like... Well, we'll get to where he says. (laughs) He's in his glory soon. So first of all, so now he's a prophet. Okay, so his understanding of Jesus has now grown. um, And he's more than just the man. He is a prophet. Okay, so the the Pharisees had a problem on their hands. They desperately needed to discredit Jesus in order to maintain moral superiority of the people. These were not good men. They might have been good on the out, looking good. And then it might have been clean. But when Jesus calls him, and we'll get there, 
um, whitewashed sepulchers and full of dead man's bones. These were wicked men who were subverting the people, making a truckload of money on this whole temple system, and they did not want Jesus. They just, they wanted a political Jesus, and Jesus was not it, so he was nothing. And they were going to do whatever they had to do. Only an authentic man of God could do miraculous things. Therefore, the miracle had to be discredited. Because the man would not cooperate, the religious leaders summoned the parents, hoping to uncover some additional facts that would support their intentions. This was never a search for truth, ladies. Yeah. (laughs) This was a deliberate sifting of the facts um, in which inconvenient evidence was set aside in favor of what would build a damning case against the Pharisees' enemy. The Pharisees' campaign of fear and intimidation was by this time so well known that the parents... Wouldn't, wouldn't even venture. I'm just saying these were not these were not good men. Um, so let's finish the story. This is one of my favorite stories. Okay, so verse 24 through 34. So for the second time, could you imagine this guy? He's already entertained the whole neighborhood brigade. You know, now he's been caught before the Pharisees. Now he's before his parents and the Pharisees, and now he's back to the Pharisees. For the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know. I was blind, and now I see. Like, deal with it. (laughs) They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be one of his disciples? (laughs) Oh, this was funny. (laughs) So they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as far as this man, we do not know where he comes from. And this is my favorite line. So the man answered him, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet... He opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worship of of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has there been heard of anyone who opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Then they answered him. You were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. I'm just saying, this man made some good points. But I have to tell you that you are never going to argue a person into the kingdom of God. You, and it is silly. You do what he did. You tell the facts. You can, say, you can say whatever you want. I was blind, and now I see. It doesn't make sense that you can't figure this out, but I know that he must be from God. So again, then we have this beautiful passage, because up until this point, Jesus is missing out of this, of this whole scene. But now that they cast him out, who do you think goes and finds him? <laughs> so Jesus is so, okay. Um, oh, well, let me go back and tell you a few things. Okay, when he says, give glory to God, that's like a Jewish way of saying, tell the t- whole truth, nothing but the truth, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it started with Joshua and Achan when they told, when Achan hid the stuff, remember? Mm-hmm. And he said, give glory to God. It means own up to the truth. Um, so, and it was interesting because again, John, the Apostle John, is sort of the, 
he loves these double entendres things because honestly that's what jesus said the man was born that he healed him so that we would see the work of god you know that in essence we would see god's glory um so anyway interesting so the pharisees tried to persuade them to agree with their conclusion that jesus was a sinner but he kept returning to the facts so the pharisees attempted to sift through the facts again hoping to find an inconsistency but the man's response highlighted the absurdity of the questioning and that angered the pharisees who then resorted to intimidation and personal attack let me just tell you this is how it goes down this is how it goes down don't be surprised this is how they are not they were not interested in knowing the truth they were not um but let me just tell you this little beggar he had must have been sitting close enough that he could hear stuff because he pretty much knew uh psalm 66 18 where it says if i cherished iniquity in my heart the lord would have not have listened and proverbs 15 29 the lord is far from the wicked but he hears the prayer of the righteous so this man knew his scripture um he's been hanging out yeah there's nothing wrong with his hearing <laughs> Um, I love, F.F. Uh, Bruce says that <laughs> the blind man displays an unsuspected capacity for ironical repartee. <laughs> and he does. And again, you have to realize that this guy was the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the social strata. And he is confronting and hanging and doing a good job against the smartest, the brightest, and the best. And he did well. So anyway, amen to him. So anyway, so Jesus comes and finds him. Um, the Pharisees are further embarrassed by the irrefutable logic of the beggar who is the lowest strata of society. And again, they resort to insults and they com- uh, excommunicate him. Um, Chrysostom, which is one of the early church fathers, said, The Jews cast him out of the temple, and the Lord of the temple found him. Jesus is always true to the man who is true to him. Um, so let's go to, to the end. It says uh, 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him are we also blind and jesus said if you were blind you would have no guilt but that you say we see your guilt remains so first of all we see the we see the man who is physically made um well and now can see now he is spiritually he's on par he has gone from the man Jesus to the prophet Jesus to Jesus who is God and he worships him um, he falls on his knees and so that's like I mean this is a good guy and the thing is is that nobody else noticed him but Jesus and that speaks to me because there might be people in our lives that we don't notice either um, that we just they don't run with us or they're not in our crowd um, but Jesus was looking, and you know they were using him as a theological debate, the disciples. But Jesus said, "The, the man needs me," and and Jesus went to the man. So um, let me make two points. Um, the me- the beggar moved in his understanding um, of Jesus, uh, and and again, this was his spiritual enlightenment. 
uh, two points. First, Jesus came for judgment. Christ is God's standard of judgment. Now, we talked a lot about this when we talked about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, how we are sinful and we will all fall short of God's standard who is Jesus' righteousness. Um, let me just say that, you know, in the great, great white throne judgment, in all of the judgments, they're not going to ask how you did or how many good things you did. It's going to be all about, did, what, what about, what is Jesus to you? Because either you are robed in his righteousness and you get the pass, or you are not, and you are already headed to hell. So that's that the man who is conscious of his own blindness and who longs to see better and know more is the man whose eyes can be opened and he and can be led more and more deeply into truth. The man who thinks he knows it all, the Pharisee, the man who does not realize that he cannot see, is a man who is truly blind beyond hope and help. Only the man who realizes his own blindness can learn to see, and only the man who realizes his own sin. So I, this is such a beautiful story on so many different levels. I just want you to get it. And go back and just read it a few times because he is, the beggar is just too funny. I mean, this, I, I couldn't have written a better script. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done this like in Iwana and acted out because it's just really, it's a mus- It's such a great story. But it parallels the, the, the blindness of the Pharisees and, and the uh, healing of the man. So the second point is the more knowledge a man has, the more he has to be condemned if he does not recognize the good when he sees it. The Pharisees, have, if they had been brought up in ignorance, they would have not been condemned. That's what he's saying here. But their condemnation lay in the fact that he knew they knew so much and they claimed to see so well, yet they failed to recognize God's Son when he came. Swindoll writes, the man's unwillingness to set aside truth about Jesus closely parallels the miracle of sight. The beggar wanted to see Jesus as he is, whereas the Pharisee wanted an excuse to reject Jesus. Uh, While the man demonstrated uncommon courage, despite the grave consequences of excommunication, he did not know Christ as Savior, therefore Jesus found him. And um, and then when by that time his heart had been prepared for the Lord's invitation, so his immediate response was worship. The point was not lost on the Pharisees who challenged Jesus, well, we're not blind too. And it's interesting because the Greek construction here, it, it's almost like they're saying, they wanted Jesus, they expected Jesus to say, oh, of course you're not blind. And Jesus didn't say that. <laughs> Jesus didn't cooperate. He knew that they, they were spiritually blind. Jesus' response forms a paradox. Those who are spiritually blind do not think they're missing anything. And they deny their need. Those who see are those who admit the need for spiritual sight. Spiritually blind people conceal their sinfulness in order to bluff themselves and everyone else into thinking that they have no need of salvation. Whereas people with spiritual sight readily recognize their own sinfulness and their desperate need for a savior. This is such a beautiful picture. Think about this later, because again, there's a lot there. Um, John has got lots of levels going on here. Um, but we're going to, uh, he, an old saying that you've heard, there is none so blind as those who will not see. That's like perfect for this. In John chapter 3, if you want to flip a few pages back, 
Remember we said that he's light and darkness was one of his favorite themes, John's themes. And this is, it says, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does not does what is true comes into the light so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. <coughs> Just, you know, remember 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, and I'm going to read it later. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. You cannot refute the light. The light wins. The only way you can refute the light is by blindness. Because if you have a room, and remember we, we talked way back in the beginning about how the Greeks, by this time, most of the, most of the Christians were Greeks now, and they, they believed this dualistic system of light and darkness. But they believed like light and darkness were like equal, and they would fight each other, you know. And Jesus said, no, 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 I'm the light, and the darkness has to flee. Because in light, we're going to talk about it in a second ago, in a second, what is light? That's the nature of light. Um, so, and that is a, a message of great hope. Um, so blame, uh, so anyway. Okay, I wanted you to, if you ever want to read something fun, um, Matthew records Jesus's woes to these Pharisees in chapter 23 of Matthew. Um, if you really want to know what Jesus thought about them, read Matthew 23. Um, he pronounced, whoa, 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 and he called them blind guides, blind fools, blind men, and you blind Pharisees, okay? So he does call them blind, um, and he's not, very, he's not very nice about it, actually. He calls what he sees. Um, again, you have to realize that these men set themselves up, and if you read the chapter, it's really good, as to be the purveyors. They, they were supposed to be the purveyors of truth, and instead they were leading people astray, and they were making money off this whole temple system. So, so Jesus had no truck with them. So read that. It's kind of fun. Okay, so what is light? Because this is Jesus says, I am the light of the world. What is light? First of all, there's four facts about light. The first one is that we really don't, even in all of our wisdom and our technology in this age, we don't really understand what light is because light sometimes it's very complicated sometimes light behaves as a wave and sometimes it behaves as a particle and i asked my husband about this and he oh he just said this really long story about shining light through things and how these properties i was like okay that's nice <laughs> that's very nice um but here's the good news um we don't have to understand light, and certainly a child doesn't have to understand light, but he knows enough to turn on the light when he walks into a dark room. Um, as complicated as light is, and as hard as it is to understand, it's really very easy to follow light. Um, if you've ever been, have you ever been in a cave when they turned all the lights out? That's creepy. Yeah. Um, 
But the guy doesn't have to say, when he turns on the one light, he doesn't say, oh, follow closely behind me, because you are all, like, right at his heels. Because it is creepy when you realize, like, oh, my gosh, I could totally be lost forever. (laughs) It's easy. Light is easy to follow. Number two of my four facts. Physical light is... Light is essential to life. Without the sun as we know it, life would not exist. For the, from the most basic plant life to mankind, everyone needs light. Um, and just as Jesus, we need physical life to live, Jesus is the light and we need him for life. He's the life. Okay, number three is light is powerful. Um, the sun is 1,300,000 times bigger than the earth. There's a fact for you, if you ever go on Jeopardy. <laughs> um, and that sun provides enough energy for our whole entire earth. Sort of an amazing thing. Sometimes I think we really just need to focus on Jesus as the creator. And I think that sometimes... He's just more amazing than we can possibly imagine. And then the fourth thing about light is the word light is associated in Jewish thought and language with God. It's always been thus. In Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of who shall I be afraid? Isaiah 60, verse 19, the Lord will be your everlasting light. So um, one of my commentators writes, the light designates the nature of Jesus directly. Jesus is not like a light. Jesus is the light. Um, Boltman writes, by making the world bright, it makes it possible for men to see. But sight is not only significant in that it enables man to orient himself in respects to objects, sight is also at the same time the means by which man understands himself and his world. The reason he does not grope in the dark but sees his way. Recognizing the way is not sufficient. We have to walk in it. Jesus doesn't want mere admirers. He wants believing followers. And that's why he's the light. And that's why he says, follow me. Um, As our physical sight guides us through our physical world, Jesus is here as the light to guide us in our spiritual life. Our perception of our own spiritual darkness will be reflected in the urgency in which we follow. It's like the cave. If you're getting in the way back of the line, all of a sudden you have this tremendous urgency to get close. Um, If we see clearly our peril... We will follow quickly and closely. I just want you to know that in a world that's going in so many different directions, Jesus says, I am the light. And let me tell you, even a kid knows to to turn the light on. And um, so um, let me just say, when Jesus uh, claimed that he was the light, pretty much everyone knew that he was making a claim that he was God. Um... The healing of the blind man is presented as a parable of spiritual illumination. Thanks to the coming of the true light of the world, many who were formerly in darkness have been enlightened. That's God's point. That's God's point. So let me go back and let's just look at that I am passage in 8.12. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me 
will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, so our job, what is our job? He's, his job is to be the light. What is our job? To follow, right? Okay. Now, the Greek word for follow is akaluthine, and William Barclay has five closely connected meanings that all shed beautiful light on um light on this <laughs> okay so the first one is um the first connotation for alakuthine is it's often used as a soldier following his captain wherever he may lead now let me just tell you my daughter's in the navy and theirs is not to wonder why <laughs> theirs is to do or die there is no questioning they follow, and they are trained. In fact, that's the whole purpose of boot camp and some of the other really hard trials that she's gone through. They don't want them thinking. They want them obeying because that's the way this, this whole thing is going to work. So I'm just saying that's the kind of following he's talking about. Um, 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, Paul writes. No soldier gets entangled in his civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So as we follow, we're to be a good soldier. Number two, it is often used as a slave <coughs> accompanying his master. He positions, the slave positions himself so that he is at his master's beck and call. Paul, one of Paul's most favorite expressions for himself is a bond slave of Jesus Christ, a doulos. And that is, he, that, well, I don't have time to tell you about doulos because it's such a good word, but I'll tell you another time. But Luke 17, 7 through 10 talks about when Jesus is talking about a servant. This is his comment. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come from the field, come in at once and recline at my table? Will he rather not say, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he commanded? So you, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants because we have only done what was our duty. Remember, Jesus at one point is going to say, uh, well done, thou good and faithful servant. servant. Okay. Um, three, it's often used of accepting a wise counselor's opinion. You know, when Jesus came in Isaiah 9, 6, we, you know, we just had Christmas, and we all know this verse. For unto you a child is born, for unto you a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. He has a few things to tell us. He, I just think that's very cool because we all know that you know counseling is such a good thing. I'm a counselor, so I think that. But, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a good counselor. And here we have one in-house, literally. <laughs> um, so then we go to four. It is often used of giving obedience to the laws of a city or state, like following the speed limit, something. Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is really our king. Do we obey him? 
Um, number five, it's often used of following a teacher's line of argument and understanding. Do you follow me? <laughs> That's what it means. Colossians 2, 2 and 3 says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and of knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Mm, It's such a beautiful verse. The Christian is a man who has understood the meaning of the teachings of Christ. He has not just listened with dull incomprehension or with slack attention. He takes the message into his mind, being our, you would be no longer conformed to this world, but be transferred by the renewing of your mind. Takes the message into his mind. He understands it. He receives the words. He chews them. That's the bread. He words, puts them in his memory, and he remembers, and he hides them in his heart, and he obeys them. And this is this cherished friendship that John is trying to help us understand. This is what he wants us to do. So, how do we follow him? How close do we follow him? Um, I know that when you're, you know when your kids are scared, how close they follow you. You know, remember what, you know, I remember, like, I, I was, I kept saying, when is, when can I walk without somebody grabbing my leg? You know? <laughs> and if they're scared at all, my kids, I don't know why, I had all girls. Anytime they saw a man, Mm-mm. I mean, it sucked right up to me like a, like a Ziploc bag. They were all like up to me because they trusted me to protect them against whatever this this stranger is, stranger danger is. How close do we follow Jesus? Peter says, First um, Peter two twenty one. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. The closer we follow, I think, honestly, the more we're illuminated by his light, the more things make sense, the more, even honestly, the things that don't make sense, we're able to trust him because we sense his presence. When my kids, sometimes they could, you know, if they were scared of a storm, I could explain how this lightning is not going to hurt them or the thunder was not going to get them. But all they really wanted was to sleep in my bed <laughs> because they knew I would take care of them. And that, how close do we follow Jesus? Um, okay, so let me just end because I know I'm running out of time here. Um, there is, there is uh, the rest of the story. Because I just have to tell you that this light that he's come into this world, you know, he went away. And we're going to talk about who's the light in a few minutes together. But there's the end of the rest of the, Paul Tarby talks about the rest of the story. And the rest of the story um, is actually found in Revelation. And in Revelation 5, 20, uh, 12 through 13. No, I'm going to read I'm going to read uh, Revelation 22, 3 through 5. This is at the very end. After the kingdom, the millennium, we have the new heavens and the new earth. This is the end. Okay. He says, John, same apostle, says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be on it. 
and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, foreheads and there will be no more night. They will not need any light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Ladies, we're going to be in the light forever and ever. And this seems like a hard time and we seems like darkness and it is. This our times are dark. We are called to be the light of the world. But let me just tell you this is a blip on the radar. Um my favorite author is C.S. Lewis and he says at the conclusion in the last battle and I'm going to leave you with this all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had just been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning the chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Amen. Amen. So that, my friends, is the is the story about the light.